Hello and welcome to the Grumpy Collector. This is Troy McHenry, and I'm here to tell you your life just got better. Thank you for listening to our inaugural episode. This podcast is all about helping you navigate the modern world of stuff. And what do I mean by stuff? I mean there is a lot of choices of how we can spend our money, how we can collect, how we can curate, how do we do that in maybe a more sustainable means, and also how do we do it so we don't avoid some of the mental and emotional pitfalls of hype culture, drops, fear of missing out, FOMO. You know, we try to tell ourselves you only live once, but it's just stuff. But there's another side of us where we can't help it. And so let's talk about that through this series of podcasts and really talk about how do we curate those things that we love, whether it be watches, art, craft, clothes, shoes, everyday items. There's a lot of things the contemporary modern person has that we want to use as maybe totems to to represent our belief systems or style or education status it's amazing what we let stuff fill in the place of but all that being said you know there's a lot of positive things too when i think about material possessions which i just like to akin to stuff because also it helps you support things like the arts and crafts. You know, when you buy a watch that's using, you know, like a dial where the entire dial is made out of feathers, right? That's a, a craft. I think Hermes does that, if I'm not mistaken. And when you buy something like that, you're helping support that craft and that artwork. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, fade into history. So we all have to be kind of mini patrons as well but then there's a lot of fake uh stuff i guess we could say where maybe it doesn't live up to the hype and so let's explore all of this together but for this inaugural episode how about we talk about watches and specifically i thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk about what i would surely consider the fastest growing luxury watch brand right now, which is Grand Seiko. I can't think of another watch brand that has grown so fast in such a short period of time, at least in the Western hemisphere. Maybe that's the way to to phrase it. And it's interesting to think about how it's happened and how large Grand Seiko has gotten in such a short period of time. And I'll tell you, a great way to see this rise is to look at all the articles Houdinki has published on Grand Seiko. And if you go way back, uh, their first several articles are all on vintage JDM pieces, Japanese domestic market pieces. No surprise there. Um, because that's all really there was. And that's maybe what the old school Houdinki reader uh, was interested in. 
and there wasn't really a lot of alternatives. Um, but then you start seeing over time, um, you know, a few initial, um, you know, watches get covered that are modern. And just in really the last five years, but then it really ramps up from there. And of course, you know, Houdinki is also a dealer of Grand Seiko. So there's that, but I don't even pay attention to that. I really just think about the articles and the coverage uh, that they've provided and, and the really the rest of the watch media. And it's a huge rise. And I think for maybe us Westerners, we've always had a love of Japanese culture. I know I have. I don't know if I would call myself a Japanophile. Is that the right word? Kind of like Francophile or um, Anglophile. But, you know, there is something that I think really appeals to me and probably appeals to a lot of people of the concerted effort with at least what we perceive as, you know, key characteristics of Japanese culture, you know, understated, meticulously designed, uh, meticulously crafted or built, nothing is rushed, right? These are kind of the the tropes that we have in our minds. I think we see that with Japanese metalwork, Japanese ceramics, Japanese paper, uh, and I think Grand Seiko really plays into that. And for the longest time, um, and maybe even still to a lesser degree today, I'd be curious for your um, opinions, is that their design also leaves a lot to be maybe desired, at least on the surface, uh, because, um, you know, they're more sedate designs. They're not going to hit you in the face like an Hublot will or Frank Mueller um, or a Zenith, right? Um, but closer inspection, spending some alone time with one of their watches really can, I think, help people get that understanding and perhaps even that appreciation. But the other thing that I think is so interesting of how Grand Seiko has positioned themselves, and I don't think they even necessarily purposely went for this, but it's happened, is, you know, Grand Seiko was always kind of considered an insider brand, right? And I think there is a huge appeal for watch collectors, and really any collector, I suppose, where you have something that other people can't find, can't acquire, you know, that's that's why we all love limited editions, I suppose. You know, the last thing you want is you walk down the street and you see someone uh, wearing the exact same pair of shoes or jacket or, or watch. Um, and I think for Grand Seiko, as they slowly started rolling out, they, they were still available in just a handful of retailers and boutiques. And because of that, it had a, still a very insidery uh, feeling. And I think it's been able to hold on to that a bit, um, probably because, you know, they don't have really a single model where people are dying to get it and they can't. 
which actually is kind of refreshing that you could walk into a Grand Seiko retailer and get most of the models they want without too much um, resistance. Maybe you'd have to wait a little bit if you wanted the pink dial shun bun or the white birch, but really short of those, um, you know, you'll be able to, to get what you want. And more importantly, a lot of the watches there, when you go to a, an authorized dealer, you know, they actually have some in stock that you can try on. And so, you know, as I think about Grand Seiko and my kind of, I'll say love for them, that's probably a strong word, but um, I think it applies. But, you know, I, I find myself today with three Grand Seikos in my collection, or maybe I should say two and a half. Two are for me that I wear regularly, and one uh, I bought for my wife. The first Grand Seiko I purchased was a quartz model, the SBGV245. And it's, uh, you know, just like with Rolex models, and, you know, there's not a lot of brands that are like this. So that's maybe something else that's super interesting about Grand Seiko already is, you know, just like with Rolex, there's a nickname for most models, at least the popular ones in steel. Uh, but with Grand Seiko, there's also... Um, starting to develop nicknames for certain models. And maybe this isn't so much a correlation with Rolex as is a correlation with just regular Seiko watches uh, where most of those have nicknames, right? The the 007, the 009, which are the SKXs. Interesting, we, we speak of those just by the the model name, but then there's Turtles and Samurais, Black Knights, Orange Monsters, it's pretty varied. What really attracted me to Grand Seiko, and again, we could debate if this is something around Japanese culture or not, but they have, I would say them and FP Jorn, which is pretty good company to keep, if you ask me, are the two that have the very best quartz-powered watches. And when you think of quartz, you think, you know, as a watch collector, you know, it's the lowest of the low. It uses a battery, so it's not mechanical. It's not um, automatic or manual winding. And you see that jump second hand, which all of us know is the tail for when a watch is quartz-powered not fully mechanical in nature. And I started hearing about Grand Seiko and their quartz watches uh, a few years ago and how they approached it, where they grow the crystals themselves. You, you've probably heard that if you're a, a watch collector, and that's pretty amazing. I don't think really anyone else does that. But for me, the movement that's in mine is the 9F move, quartz movement. And what I love about this too is like there's perlage on the movement, on a quartz movement. And they've encapsulated the movement in such a way when, you know, any jabroni opens up the case back to replace the battery 
um, it, the movement, the quartz movement is still sealed and separate from, you know, the battery compartment. So you don't have to worry too much about introducing, you know, dust and things um, when you're doing a, a battery change on it. And they even, you know, have um, some sort of like clutch system. So the second hand, when it does tick, uh, you know, it doesn't vibrate after that, you know, one second moment of inertia. It's very crisp. And so, you know, after learning about the brand and seeing how they approached doing a watch with a quartz movement, I decided to get one. Again, the the SB GV245. And it has a nickname, the Great Beast, apparently, because it has a, a really pretty gray dial with some very super faint horizontal uh, graining or, or lines. And it has these big, fat, hour and minute hands and has a, a really nice, subtle, blued uh, second hand. and has a frame to date window. And it has loom on the hands and the... Uh, the indices. You know, and the other thing about Grand Seiko and their quartz watches is the cases they put them in are just as well made with this Ratsu polishing that they're famous for and the graining and the crowns, everything. You know, there's no shortcuts taken, I guess, from a watch perspective when they build a quartz watch or their flagship spring drive chronograph. Um, and I think that really appealed to me. You know, they're thinking, hey, if our name is gonna be on the dial, let's make sure it's uh, a fantastic uh, product. And I'll tell you this gray beast, this sport model, it does have a screw down crown, has been a great watch to wear. And with the, you know, steel case with its polished bevels and brushed uh, flat surfaces. It has be really been a strap monster for me. If you go on uh, my Instagram page, uh, the Grumpy Collector, you'll see some pictures of it there. And I like wearing it probably the most on a navy shell cordovan strap. Um, it really pulls out and teases and matches that uh, blued second hand and a great story if you're not aware of this and if you ever go to a, a long form presentation on Grand Seiko you'll hear about this and this is probably something else that endeared me so much to Grand Seiko and then also to this particular model because after I heard this story I said "Ooh, I've got to get a model that has a blued second hand and that is apparently there is someone in the factory in Japan and their job is to manually heat treat. That's the, the real way to, to blue metal, right? In old watch movements, you always would see either blued hair springs or blued screws. And the best way to do that is to put them on a hot plate and you heat them up. It's almost a way of annealing, right? To make it stronger. That's really the, the purpose of it. It's not just decorative. But in Grand Seiko's case, they have one person whose job it is, they're like the master bluer, 
and they take their tooth, you know, their little tweezers, and they pick up each fresh machined second hand and put it on a hot plate and watch it and watch that metal turn to blue and then they pick it up when it's right at the right color and they set it down and they do it again. Interestingly, if you blue something longer, you actually get a really pretty violet color too, but it's all about getting that just right blue. Um, as you can imagine, it's a can be a fairly repeatable process though. You know, different metals can, uh, you know, with impurities and things, potentially could take a little bit longer or a little bit shorter. But I think most watch manufacturers are just buying their blued hands and they're probably just done in, uh, you know, huge batches. Or if you really want to take a shortcut, uh, what a lot of watch manufacturers will do is they'll just chemically blue the hands, right? You can just almost like um, paint them or anodize them and be done with it. Uh, but at Grand Seiko, they have one person doing each second hand uh, individually all day long. What a romantic story that is. I hope they have a, a good view where they where they sit. Um, so with that, I said to myself, when I want to try a Grand Seiko, I've got to get one that has one of these blued uh, hands just to kind of experience that uh first hand and it really is a lovely second hand I, I might add um something else i've noticed with grand seiko that i don't see with a lot of my other watches is the second hand is capped so you don't see the stem in the middle it's a solid hand that just fits right on top um it's a really clean look that uh, very few uh watch manufacturers do so that was my, my first Grand Seiko, and I really enjoyed that. Again, super sporty model. But then I wanted to explore something that's perhaps also tugs at what Grand Seiko is about, but in a, in a very different direction. And in this case, I'm talking about... Uh, one of their titanium models, so super light, but they still do the Zeratsu polishing on it, which if you've never worked with titanium before, it really always wants to be a matte finish, in my opinion. So how to get titanium to be that high of a mirror polish really is a, a, um, extraordinary, in, in my opinion. Um, and I wanted to really try the other end of what perhaps Seiko and, and really Grand Seiko have become known for, which is their spring drive movement, which is totally unique to them, where it's, you know, a mechanical movement. I'm looking at my spring drive Grand Seiko right here in front of me with 30 joules. It's quite a bit for a watch that just uh, is a three-hander with date and a power reserve on the dial. Uh, but it has the accuracy of a quartz watch. And so it's a really interesting thing. I would really call it, it's pretty much the the best of both worlds, that you get the accuracy of quartz, but the heart of the watch is still very much uh, mechanical. And there's, you know, manual wind and uh, automatic winding. Mine has a rotor, so it's automatic winding. 
and the rotor itself has um, just really pretty um, Coast de Genève finishing on the on the rotor. And the one I got was the SBGA413, which is known as Spring or the Shun Bun. And it has this super pale pink dial. And in certain light, with certain straps, it can look silverish with no hint of color. And then when you put this on a navy strap or, you know, really anything with, with some color, then that pink really starts to um, show through. No loom whatsoever. And uh, I the seconds hand and actually all four hands, uh, the hour, the minute, the second, and the power reserve hand are all just um, highly polished. So no blued. So uh, our uh, master bluer got to take a break on, on this one. But what's really interesting with Grand Seiko and something they've really been able to separate themselves from others is the dial is pressed, and that's not unusual. You know, you have a master design, and you take a, a thin plate, and you you press it against a dial, just as if you were making a coin. Um, but the the textures they have, and the kind of like the dial pattern they're using, you know, they're they're hand engraved to start with the the design, and it's just the depth and how it captures the light, there's just not a lot of other watches like like it. I really can't think of any. I mean, it's textured and, uh, you know, it almost, you know, this watch is meant to um, inspire, you know, the, the cherry blossoms in spring. But, you know, to me, in certain light, it looks like close up of, almost like um, cotton candy, I guess. Maybe that's my hot take for, for today. But uh, it's just really, really well done. And if you haven't had a spring drive um, in your hands before or on your wrist, you know, the, the thing that is hard to appreciate, you can appreciate some if you watch videos on YouTube or, or elsewhere, but until you really get one in your hand, it's that the second hand is a, a true sweep second hand. It's not, um, you know, going, you know, um, jerking five times per second, like on a traditional mechanical watch, you know, depending on the, the frequency. I mean, it's perfectly smooth. And I think, you know, for us, you know, time, we think of time as being smooth and, and straight as well. So, I guess I just love how this uh, tells time. And that sweet second hand is just, it's intoxicating. It's bewitching. Um, you know, and it could not be more different than my first Grand Seiko with that big uh, second hand that is, you know, jumping every single second. And both work uh, as intended. But, uh, you know, they both exude that quiet, not shouting, assured style. You know, it's a very confident style, I think, um, that Grand Seiko possesses. And it's an understated elegance. Um, you know, it's a watch. Both of these are watches I think you could wear anytime, anywhere. 
and probably most people would never give two looks at it. Honestly, it doesn't have a cyclops on the crystal to broadcast, uh, you know, who it is. They're, they're very uh, quiet watches. Um, the other really interesting thing about um, this spring drive, this uh, spring spring drive <laughs> with the pink dial and the titanium case, and again, with that Zratsu polishing on that titanium. But it's the crystal is so raised on it that it's almost like a, a huge coin, very much of a, you know, reminiscent of a, a vintage watches. We had this huge cap crystal. You know, of course, those were predominantly acrylic. And this is, uh, of course, sapphire. But it's um, it's a very throwback sort of thing. But it really helps you um, be able to look at the dial from all sorts of angles. And really, because it's it's all sapphire, it really protects the, the case and the bevels to a certain degree, too. And so far, I've, I've owned this watch for um, a few months now, and it really does not show any scratches, um, which is something I was worried of with sometimes with all these high-polished uh, surfaces. Grand Seiko did something very interesting. And again, I think, you know, when we think about watch brands we love, no matter what they are, what price point they are, you know, it's almost like we don't want them to be perfect. You know, if you want a perfect watch, probably buy a Rolex. Everything's been thought out and everything's been slowly iterated on like a Porsche 911, right? Nothing is revolutionary. Everything is uh, evolutionary. But with Grand Seiko, there's there's quirks. And I think the quirks can be endearing uh, for some people who really like the brand or like the watches. Um, and for others, it can drive them insane. And uh, I think that's also honestly part of the appeal. Um, when I think of the quartz Grand Seiko, I have the Great Beast, the SBGV245. It really doesn't have any quirks. It's a solid watch it looks fantastic you know there's there's nothing you need to change on it you know the strap it comes with is like this canvas strap it doesn't do anything for the watch probably the first thing you should do is just chuck that and and buy some decent straps for it but short of that you know it's it's good to go the grand seiko on the other hand um the shun bun the spring season with the spring drive has i would say two big quirks uh, that people um, love or hate, and I would say most hate. The first being, and the first one you, you see readily is, you know, it has this gorgeous dial, and then right between 7 and 8 o'clock <laughs> at 7.30, there's a big power reserve. Um, now, if you zoom in and look at it, it's gorgeous. Um, and on this shun bun, it actually blends in super nicely. There's actually some Grand Seiko spring drive models where they have that spring drive power reserve and they actually do that in a separate color. And then it really stands out, really kind of sticks its thumb in your eye. But on um, on most, it's color matched to the dial. And I find on, on mine, it, it blends in just fine. Um, do I love it? No. Do I like having a, 
a power reserve on a mechanical watch? Absolutely. I always joked if uh, I had my own watch brand, you know, I every watch would have a power reserve because I think that's so important. And honestly, I think I would put the other thing I would love to have is an AM PM indicator, just so I know when I'm setting the time, is it AM or PM? So I know, uh, you know, how to set the date without having them to go past um, 12 more than I need to. But total aside, so you have this power reserve on the dial. And, you know, again, Grand Seiko is really known for their dials, known for these beautifully textured dials. And then they mess it up and stick there at 7.30, a power reserve indicator. And it's on a automatic winding watch. Again, I don't have a beef with that either. And honestly, I like having a power reserve even on an automatic winding watch. A lot of people think you only need it on a manual winding watch. Um, actually, I feel very much the opposite. But I don't need to see the power reserve on my watch, especially if it's automatic winding, all the time, right? If it's If it's running and then I put it on my wrist, if it's automatic, great. I'm going to be running around and it will stay wound. Really, when I want to see how much power my watch has is in the, you know, the very first time I put it on and probably at the end of the day when I take it off. And so for me, the best place to put a power reserve is on the back of the watch if it has a display back. And what's great is, unlike some watch brands that we could name, I think what makes Grand Seiko so great is it has some of these quirks, but they also are willing to listen to criticism. And if it's honest criticism, constructive criticism, and, uh, you know, grounded in uh, reality and taste, they'll listen to it. And so some of the newer Grand Seiko models, even if they're automatic winding, now have the power reserve on the back which I think is fantastic for future models. So they're only getting better from that regard. It makes the dial less cluttered and uh, lets the pattern really breathe free, but you'll still have it uh, on the back. And in turn to do that, because you know a rotor, when you have it on a movement, typically can take up anywhere from a third to half of the, of the real estate. They've hollowed out the rotor quite a bit. And so you can still see the power reserve, even if, um, in most cases, the rotor's in the way. So that's kind of the first quirk with this titanium spring drive model uh, with this uh, pale pink dial. Again, it's the SBGA413. But outside of the power reserve, the other quirk about this watch is when you flip it over, again, I told you it has this gorgeous um, decorated spring drive movement with the rotor and you can see the rotor move back and forth as it winds it which is fun and you know I never even really thought too much about it until I was listening to an episode of Houdinki Radio with uh, Stephen J. Uh, Pulverant and he was saying you know what drives me nuts he said it's it's the back of the watch because it's like you can't win because people always uh, debate should a watch have a solid case back or should it have a, a 
you know, a, a display back where it's uh, a crystal. So you can see the, the movement on the inside. And Grand Seiko definitely did something that most people would say is like, you've taken the, the worst of, of both. Meaning, you know, if you have a smooth, solid metal case back, people love that because then you can get the watch engraved, which makes it special if you're gifting the watch to someone or if you're keeping it and you want to mark a special occasion. I actually got this watch to help mark the, the birth of our daughter, uh, Agnes. And so, um, you know, would I like to have had a plain case back so I can engrave her, her date of birth and her name? Uh, absolutely. But instead, it's, um, it's just a, a big, smooth, round piece of uh, sapphire glass, which is nice because then I, I can uh, appreciate the movement. However, Grand Seiko, uh, in the middle of the uh, sapphire crystal on the inside, uh, they've done some uh, printing, and it's of uh, you know the the Grand Seiko line and the Grand Seiko name uh, right in the middle. Now, you know, uh, most people I think without knowing anything else about watches would look at that and say. Well, why would you go to all the effort of putting a, a sapphire crystal on the watch and then you're going to put um, a printing on that glass and so now you can't even fully appreciate um, the movement. But if you go back in time, I mean, there is an absolute precedent because all Grand Seikos had a medallion inlaid in the back of the case uh, that says Grand Seiko. And as a matter of fact, if I flip over my quartz model, I see that same medallion, but it's a solid case back, right? It's a quartz watch. There's no need to see the movement. And they have that nice textured lion and Grand Seiko logo. Well, I'm sure whoever was in the you know, product design department said, hey, we have this new beautiful movement, the spring drive movement, Let's put a crystal on there uh, so people can appreciate the movement. But we still want to harken back or call back to all of that previous, you know, 50, 60 years DNA of Grand Seiko that always had a, a medallion. Sometimes they even were like a, a gold capped or, um, you know, um, a little gold medallion in there. And they're always highly textured and three-dimensional and so let's harken back to that so let's put something that references that but you know under under the crystal and um and that's what they did but it really uh, has upset american collectors um uh, because of that because now you can't you can't get the watch engraved necessarily uh, but you also can't uh, appreciate the and view the entire movement because of that image. And again, Grand Seiko has been listening to uh, some of that criticism and taking it to heart in some of their newer models that have display backs. Uh, it's totally clear. So um, maybe that is what's most encouraging of all is that Grand Seiko is willing to listen to collectors. Um, but I like it with the quirks and, uh, I think it's an interesting 
step in uh, their direction as they, they grow into such a, a large uh, and really respected brand. Uh, the third Grand Seiko that I have, that half, as I like to say, because it's uh, my wife wears and it's only for her. It's uh, a unique model. It's a STGR207. I wanted to get her a pink dial Grand Seiko to wear women's size, no diamonds, and she does not uh, like date windows. She doesn't want to have to set the date. And so I wanted to find that, uh, find a model without a date window. And if that wasn't already hard enough, right? Women's watch, no date window, pink dial, right? Uh, no diamonds, but also um, mechanical movement, not quartz. And good luck. And I was able to find the exact model uh, that fit that bill uh, that Grand Seiko, unfortunately, had discontinued uh, just in the last couple years. But I was able to use a third-party website and uh, order it uh, from Japan and uh, get it shipped here to the States. And I was able to give it to her, and, and she, she really loves it. But how did I even find that watch? If you want to really explore Grand Seiko, I cannot recommend enough Anthony Cable's website, plus9time.com. And the nine is the, the number nine. So, you know, www.plus9time.com. And there he has documented, and there's a searchable engine, uh, for every modern day Grand Seiko, pretty much from like, I think 1988 onwards when the brand really got rebooted uh, by, by Seiko. And there I was able to enter all of those search criteria, pink dial, you know, the case size that I wanted, um, mechanical movement. And then that's how I found that reference uh, that I wanted uh, for my, um, you know, that I thought would be the perfect watch for my wife to, um, you know, commemorate uh, our daughter's birth, that STGR207. And so I can't speak highly enough of plus9time.com. If you want to look at older Grand Seikos, the website I would tell you to look at is thegrandseikoguy.com. And that is really uh, the best site for vintage think 50s 60s you know uh, maybe 40s and 70s grand seikos and he has scans of old manuals old marketing materials and ads extremely comprehensive you know you hear of watch clubs for really high-end watches like fp Jorn or or maybe mbnf um, or maybe there's a club for Audemars Piquet owners. I don't know, but you don't really see it for the, again, for the, you know, the, the price range that Grand Seiko is operating at, which I would say is between 3000 predominantly and 6,000, which is a pretty narrow window. Of course, they have some watches that are going, um, far and away above that. But again, I think them really trying to, know who is buying their watches 
is super refreshing and, you know, um, giving out things, um, you know, to people who sign up for the club, you know, you have to provide some proof of ownership of a Grand Seiko watch first. Um, but again, it's just, I love that engagement and I wish more brands did that. Um, you know, I, I think it's so interesting that for the price that Rolex charges for watches, I don't think they have any idea who buys their watches. You know, they've decided that they really want that relationship be between the retailer and that, that purchaser, that owner. Uh, but they don't care um, to have a relationship with that watch buyer uh, directly. And I think Grand Seiko really thinks of it more of a, a triangle where they want, you know, all three points to know each other. They want to know the ADs really well. And I know they do a really good job of vetting um, who is going to sell Grand Seiko watches. Plus they, you know, sell direct, which is always interesting. Um, and they want, you know, the AD to have a relationship with the people buying Grand Seikos, but then Grand Seiko also wants to have a relationship um, with the people buying and enjoying their watches. And I just love that. So again, you know, the whole idea around this podcast is really just to think about, you know, it's almost like the Financial Times' section of how to spend it. But really, it's also just to think about how do you cut through the hype? And there's so much hype models and hype brands when I think about watches. And I just think, um, you know, if you raise your head, you know, above the steel sports Rolex clouds, there's a lot of really, really great watches at affordable prices uh, that you can collect and enjoy. And uh, for me, Grand Seiko is definitely uh, has a nice niche uh, in my uh, in my watch collection. But before we end too, it's not all roses for Grand Seiko either. And I don't think there's a better way to kind of draw attention to this than if you go to, again, Anthony Cable's website, plus9time.com, and use his search engine and just pull up, you know, the Grand Seiko models that have been released in 2021 so far it's only uh october 26 as i'm recording this so we're you know almost through 10 months and i would challenge you to tell me how many different models has grand seiko um have they released this year think about it for a little bit I'll give you a few seconds. Okay, do you have a number in mind? Well, the number, again, this is just through October. There's still two more months left. We don't know. Um, They have released 62 (laughs) new reference numbers, you know, SKUs, so to speak, uh, this year already. And I think that highlights a problem that they really need to address and that even though Grand Seiko, you know, and a lot of people really think of the problem with Grand Seiko is it has Seiko in the title and that that brings it down because, you know, you can buy a watch with Seiko on the dial for, you know, a hundred dollars 
and then you can buy Grand Seiko for $50,000. Um, and so does one name cheapen the other? Should they have totally gone to a different name? I like Grand Seiko personally. It has a pedigree. It has a history already. Um, I think consumers are smart enough that they can differentiate that. And I think, you know, uh, Grand Seiko's already done a really good job of positioning the brand up market and the proofs in the pudding. Again, I can't think of a faster growing watch brand uh, in the U.S. than Grand Seiko right now. Um, but one holdover, it seems like, from the parent company is there's a lot of Seikos that get released every year, regular ones I'm talking about. You know, think of your Pokemon models and your uh, Street Fighter models, etc. But for a real luxury brand like Grand Seiko, I just feel like it's too many. And this is probably where other more old school traditional Swiss brands like Rolex like a tutor don't you know they don't release a lot of different models and they kind of do it in just a few short waves right they'll do it traditionally at either you know what tradition was SIHH or Basel World and then maybe you'd get another little taste of models in the fall and that's it and the total new models I mean when I think in the case of Rolex huge company but still every year the new models are probably what maybe 10 15 tops and Grand Seiko's at 62 this year already it's just too much and as me being a club member of Grand Seiko the GS9 club I get all their marketing emails and <laughs> it seemed like at one point in time, I got an email almost every week announcing, you know, two to three new models. And I was just like, you're killing me. Um, and then, you know, I have to think about, well, why does that upset me? Because, you know, variety is the spice of life. But I think, again, with when we think about if Grand Seiko really wants to position themselves as a luxury product, luxury inherent in luxury i think is craft for sure but there's also a little bit of a exclusivity baked in to luxury as well and i think sometimes that gets lost when you're putting out 62 models across all of your different regions and countries and then you know a really interesting thing um you know that pink dial Grand Seiko spring drive that I have, the, the shun bun, the SBGA 413. That model and the other three for the seasons, you know, there was a, a winter, a spring, summer, fall, were all specifically and only for the U.S. domestic market, which made it kind of interesting. It was something just for us Americans or those maybe traveling uh, abroad here. And the four models were so well-developed, so well-designed, and so desirable that Grand Seiko decided to change their mind and pivoted 
And now those uh, four watches are available um, across the across the globe. Again, they were never a limited edition, though. So I don't have a lot of heartburn about it. But if I had bought that watch specifically because it was a U.S. domestic market only watch, and now it's not going to be anymore, I might be a little grumpy about it, you know? So just food for thought for Grand Seiko. But I can't think of another brand that has grown so fast. But, you know, there's been no drop in quality as they've ramped up production, as they've ramped up markets, as they've ramped up marketing, uh, which is fantastic to see. And I just love that I feel like they're a little bit outside uh, the hype cycle um, and just have such different uh, economies of scale because of their parent company and because of, you know, the whole materials and probably labor uh, in Japan is, and elsewhere is probably just so different than uh, what the uh, economics look like uh, for the more traditional Swiss manufacturers. So super interesting. Um, I hope that was a great teaser of Grand Seiko. Again, every dollar all of us have to spend is precious. It's about how do we find those things that spark joy? How do we make sure that we remove ourselves from this cycle where people are spending multiples of retail for things uh, just to flex, which is sad. I hope you've enjoyed it. Look forward to another episode soon. Maybe we'll change topics, go to something outside watches for a little bit. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Grumpy Collector podcast. Find us on Instagram at the Grumpy Collector, and feel free to email me Troy at hitroy at gmail dot com. H i t r o y at gmail dot com. See you next time.